Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is a place where you have had people fighting for self-determination for 70 years. They've been saying it with their blood. I don't think they could have been clearer. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan. On today's show, we're talking about the crisis in Kashmir, where millions of people are living effectively under siege right now, thanks to an Indian government-imposed lockdown and communications blackout that has just entered its third month. Every single person who has a voice at all has been arrested. Anybody who dares to speak up is being picked up, anybody on the street. That's my very special guest today. Joining me from her home in New Delhi, the acclaimed, award-winning novelist, essayist, activist, environmentalist, anti-war campaigner, Arundhati Roy. I'll ask her about the bromance between Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and US President Donald Trump, about why the world doesn't seem to give a damn about the horrific situation in Kashmir, and about how Kashmiris are trying not just to survive, but to resist. On August 5th, the government of India under the prime ministership of Hindu nationalist Narendra Modi launched a massive military clampdown in the long-disputed Muslim-majority state of Jammu and Kashmir. Tourists were ordered out, movement for locals was restricted, communications with the outside world, landline, cell phones, the internet was cut off. There were curfews, checkpoints, night raids, attacks on peaceful protesters by Indian security forces, the detention without trial of up to four thousand Kashmiris, including three former chief ministers of the state. Separatist leaders have been moved out of Kashmir. Top politicians from the region remain under house arrest. The Indian government taking no chances, worried that the situation here could spiral into widespread unrest. Supporters of Prime Minister Modi's far-right governing party, the BJP, cheered the move. Prime Minister Modi has done what no other prime minister could have done. True Indians will support his decision. While many residents of Jammu and Kashmir, especially Muslim residents, expressed shock and outrage. In every part of India, people are celebrating, but they don't know that our hearts are bleeding. We are crying, we are under siege. Kashmir, one of the most beautiful places on earth, has a unique and troubled history. Once ruled by Hindu princes, it became India's only Muslim-majority state at independence in 1947. But the territory itself was violently and quickly divided from the get-go between India and Pakistan. And both sides have since accused the other of occupying Kashmir. In fact, these two nuclear-armed neighbours and sworn enemies have fought two major wars and one minor war over Kashmir. Inside of Indian-administered Kashmir, a violent insurgency, itself a response to political corruption and disputed elections, has cost tens of thousands of lives since the late 1980s. The Indian government blames Pakistani-backed foreign fighters and quote-unquote jihadists for all the violence. But Indian armed forces have themselves been accused of inflicting terror on the state, from extrajudicial killings to torture to sexual violence to the blinding of protesters with pellets. The pellets smashed into this boy's face 
as he played street cricket in a village in Indian-administered Kashmir. He may lose the sight in his left eye. Even before this latest crackdown, Indian-administered Kashmir was one of the most militarised places on earth, with one Indian soldier for every 20 or so Kashmiri residents. That is what repression looks like. In August, though, the Modi government crossed a new line. The clampdown imposed on Kashmir was part of a long-awaited Hindu nationalist plan to get rid of the state's semi-autonomous status and bring it under the direct control of New Delhi. Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which granted the region the right to its own constitution and own laws, was revoked overnight by the Modi government, thanks to the Modi government's majority in the national parliament, and without them getting any input, let alone consent, from Kashmiris. We have been completely betrayed. They put a gun to our heads and told us that a few people in the government have decided our fate. Yet despite all of this, the rest of the world has tended to ignore the plight of the Kashmiris. Western governments in particular have turned a blind eye to the rise of racism and, yes, fascism in the world's biggest democracy because they want to stay close to Modi and make money out of a growing Indian economy. Donald Trump, of course, is a great fan of both making money and embracing fellow authoritarian leaders. He even went to Houston the other week to join Modi at a mass rally of right-wing Indian Americans. He was a household name and very popular even before he went on to occupy the highest office in this great country. The President of the United States of America Mr. Donald Trump. Prime Minister Modi is doing a truly exceptional job for India and for all of the Indian people. And I want you to know my administration is fighting for you each and every day. We are going to take care of our Indian American citizens before we take care of illegal immigrants that want to pour into our country. Trump, of course, is an expert on the Kashmir conflict. Here he is explaining it to reporters in the Oval Office. But it's Kashmir, and Kashmir is a very complicated place. You have the Hindus and you have the Muslims, and I wouldn't say they get along so great. And that's what you have right now. You have the Hindus and the Muslims, and I wouldn't say they get along so great. Wow, that's truly profound. And here's what the president said at the UN last week while meeting with Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was warned of the growing risk of a nuclear conflict in the region if the Kashmir crisis isn't resolved soon. But don't worry, Donald Trump's here to help. I think I'd be an extremely good arbitrator. I've done it before, believe it or not, and I've never failed as an arbitrator. I've been asked to arbitrate disputes, pretty big ones, from friends. And I've done it in a good, successful fashion. Yes, the President of the United States thinks resolving the India-Pakistan conflict over Kashmir is like fixing a dispute between two friends of his. Assuming, that is, that he has friends, which is a highly dubious proposition. But look, God help the Kashmiris if Trump ever does decide to try and be an arbitrator. That's all they need right now. They already have Modi, who many have called India's Trump, to deal with. My guest today is someone who's been writing about Kashmir and campaigning on behalf of Kashmiris for many years now. Arundhati Roy happens to be both India's most famous novelist, writer and activist, 
and also the country's most fervent and outspoken critic of Narendra Modi and his Hindu nationalist movement, the RSS. She's received death threats from the far right and been accused of being anti-national and unpatriotic by India's increasingly jingoistic and xenophobic media. She joins me now from New Delhi. Arundhati Roy, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. You're welcome, Midi. Happy to be here. What is happening in Indian-administered Kashmir right now, in the state that was until very recently considered to be Jammu and Kashmir until it had its status revoked? How bad is the situation on the ground as you understand it to be? Well, look, I, I haven't uh, been there since the clampdown. I don't think uh, I would be welcomed in there. But uh, I have very close friends who, who, are, who are out actually right now. And uh, the situation seems to be that there is obviously a complete communication you know, clamp down. So in Kashmir, traditionally, normalcy has always been a military declaration. You know, it's not the people that decide what is normal. It's the establishment that decides. And so for them, normal seems to be to keep 7 million people under a complete communication blackout. And that is besides the terror, besides the reports of, you know, the thousands who are being arrested, who are being picked up, tortured, all of that. And the thousands who are being arrested and detained, just to be clear for an international audience that might not be aware of this, these people are not just quote-unquote Pakistanis or foreign fighters. They, they include leading Indian Kashmiri politicians, people who were even in government with the BJP, with Narendra Modi until a few years ago. The former chief ministers of the state have been put under house arrest. That's astonishing. Every single person who has a voice at all has been arrested. And that, as you say, includes all the former chief ministers, people who have been carrying India's water for the last 70 years. Everybody is in jail. Anybody who has a voice is in jail. Anybody who dares to speak up is being picked up, anybody on the street, you know. And, and of course, internationally, the people who are negotiating and speaking, whether it's Imran Khan or Modi or Donald Trump, why are they negotiating the fate of 7 million people who have been caged? I mean, how would it be if 7 million people in New York were caged and everybody was deciding their fate and saying, oh, it's a good thing for them in the end, you know, they ought to be locked down for 50 days because they don't know what's good for them. No, people are literally saying this. Roger Cohen of the New York Times, a liberal columnist at a liberal American paper, uh, just wrote an op-ed recently saying this could be good for Kashmir in the long run. I read it. I read it. It's so appalling, so ill-informed and so dangerous. But, you know, at least he's a ill-informed American columnist. But you had what I call the Goodbye India Howdy Modi yes. uh, show where 59,000 people were uh, were chanting in favor of this. Howdy! You know, the preparations are being put into place for a kind of horror that people who are ill-informed or people who don't have an understanding of the scale at which the dismantling of this country is happening are all participating in it. And that is so terribly disturbing. I want to come back to that in a moment, and that is very disturbing, the big picture. Just sticking with Kashmir for a moment, the two things that Kashmir is associated with on the international stage when people in the United States or the UK talk about or think about Kashmir, which is very rarely, uh, is terrorism 
and nuclear weapons. And I just want to deal with both of those because we hear a lot about terrorism and militancy in the valley of Muslim and quote unquote jihadist violence. And of course, there is quote unquote jihadist violence. There is uh, terrorism of that form. No one is defending the killing of innocent civilians, whether they're innocent Hindus, innocent Muslims, whatever. But we don't hear that much globally about what Indian security forces do in terms of violence, human rights abuses. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Arundhati, this is one of the most militarized places on earth, if not the most militarized place on earth. It is the most militarized place on earth. And perhaps right now there are more Indian troops there and have been more Indian security forces there since 1990, more than probably were deployed in Iraq or Afghanistan by the U.S., you know, and that is a valley that has been locked down. If you follow, for example, there's the Jammu and Kashmir uh, coalition, uh, civil service, JKCCS is called. There's a report, a torture report, which is so chilling to read. I mean, what happened in uh, Abu Ghraib, all these kinds of forms of torture and variations of it have been commonly practiced there. You know, so according to the Associated Press, 70,000 people have been killed in this conflict. It's a valley covered with graveyards. Every village has its own graveyard. The, the, the gravestones grow out of the ground like young children's teeth there, you know. It's a place where you have had people fighting for self-determination, for 70 years, and that fight became militant because of the repression from 1990 onwards. India's moral position on Kashmir has never, ever been a moral position. It is a kind of moral corrosion that has corroded all of us. And now, now the world is looking at it. But do you really think the world is looking at it? My worry is that the world isn't really paying much attention. And what I find so odd is, given the nuclear issue, uh, isn't it odd how little attention or how little urgency is devoted to the issue of Kashmir on the international stage from the world's superpowers, given that so many nuclear experts say that the most likely place for a devastating nuclear conflict is not the Korean peninsula, is not the Middle East, but in Kashmir or between India and Pakistan over Kashmir? Well, yes, you're right. I mean, the world, the whole world isn't looking at it. But it's got more attention now than it has ever had True. before. You know, that's what I meant. But yes. but you see, uh, India and Pakistan last February became the first two nuclear powers to actually carry out airstrikes against each other. Militarily, both are very unequal. In a conventional war, they would be very unequal enemies. Yes. So that makes the possibility of nuclear war greater. You know, if they were both equally matched, you know, you can imagine a kind of conventional war taking place. But now the humiliation of Pakistan, both in the Indian media, the moves that are being made internationally, because obviously India has more economic clout, everybody wants to sell India things and weapons and do trade deals. Pakistan is being humiliated. And that's never a good thing in a situation like this. And Kashmiris, forget Pakistan for a minute, you know. Kashmiris who have been pushed to the wall since 1990 are now being caged and humiliated and spoken for and um, treated in ways where, I mean, I listen with so much sadness 
to the fact that again and again you hear people saying it's better to die than Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And to live like this. And young men have shown that they are willing to die, you know, all this time. But now it's on a different scale altogether. And in terms of the bigger picture of the conflict in Kashmir, going back to 1990, going back all the way to partition, how much responsibility for the crisis do you ascribe to Pakistan and to the Pakistani military and intelligence services? Because on the one hand, the Indian government, of course, wants to very conveniently say, this is all foreign interference, foreign sponsorship, foreign incitement. But on the other hand, it clearly is the case that some of the most vicious and violent groups in that part of the world have been trained and armed and funded by the Pakistanis for decades. So how do you how do you split responsibility when you look at the problem in Kashmir? Well, look, this this business of arming and training, whatever you want to call them, terrorists, freedom fighters or militants, every country in this region has been involved with it. India has done it in uh, in uh, Sri Lanka, for example. India sent non-state actors into Bangladesh for what was essentially a just war. I mean, not a just war, but a war which stopped a genocide which Pakistan was committing in Bangladesh. In 1971. Yeah, in 1971. I don't think anyone, not India, not Pakistan, has a clear, clean moral position on this. No state does. You know, but how things work on the ground are quite different. People can be demonized. If it wasn't Pakistan, there would be some other way of demonizing this struggle because it's Muslim people, you know. So people will be demonized in some way or the other. And, you know, one of the things is that India has a very, very powerful and very, very bigoted media that Mm. is working 24-7 to demonize anything that the state wishes to demonize. You know, it could be an individual, it could be a struggle, it could be anything. It could be the poorest people in the world, such as people fighting for their homes and lives in central India, you know. You've said that the media is complicit in the violence that we see in places like Kashmir. For people who don't live in India, uh, but who are used to, for example, the propaganda in jingoism that comes out of Fox News here in the US on a nightly basis, um, how does the Indian media operate? How bad are they in comparison to, say, a Fox News? Well, uh, multiply Fox News into like 424 7 oh. channels in every language you can think of, you know, 
and that's what you have. And, and also, don't forget, you have a population, many of whom are still living in a kind of feudal time, who have made a jump from semi-literacy to television, you know. So, you know, the kind of fake news and the kind of nonsense that can be put out is just phenomenal. And there's this tension, isn't there, between the Indian government and the Indian media that wants to say that everyone who has ever picked up a weapon or gone near a weapon in Kashmir is a foreign-backed jihadist or a Pakistani asset. And anyone who says otherwise is an apologist or, or, or a defender of that terrorism. Well, today, today's got worse. I mean, the, I was just reading a statement by the army chief who basically said that anybody who says things are not normal in Kashmir is surviving by terrorism or, you know, sort of invested in it in yeah, some it's, way. It's astonishing. There's this denial from whether it's in Northern Ireland with the British, whether it's in Palestine with the Israelis, whether it's in uh, Syria with Assad or Iraq with the US occupation or in Kashmir, this idea that people are somehow wake up in the morning, you know, just want to commit terrorist acts for no reason. That people are born terrorists, or it's in their DNA, or it's all the religion. There's no, there's a willful denial of any link with kind of political, social, economic conditions on the ground with any kind of legitimate grievances. That's not, to, of course, to defend any kind of violence, but to say that it doesn't come out of nowhere, does it? Yeah, but this is just a strategy on the part of the state and the media that subscribes to it and is part of it and feeds off it, you know. It's not as if they believe it. They know very well that what they're saying is untrue. But that is a part of the strategy. You've talked about the attacks and abuse that you're subjected to for speaking out on Kashmir or against this BJP government across the board. You've talked about, quote, gangs of stormtroopers who turn up at your public events, call you anti-national, call you a traitor. Arundhati, uh, in India today, someone like yourself, who's as high profile as yourself, do you have to worry about your safety for your life even? Because I know India has become a pretty dangerous place for rank and file journalists and even for prominent writers who have called out the far right there. I think right now, uh, really the problem is with is for uh, journalists and media people in Kashmir. Yes. You know, they are under such great threat. I mean, the only people who have some sort of latitude to write some sort of truth are journalists, local journalists who work for foreign uh, wire services and so on, you know, who report for, for Reuters or AP or, uh, you know, BBC or things like that. And they are the ones who I really worry for, you know. Of course. And you've, you, you say, obviously you say you don't speak for Kashmiris, but you have travelled to Kashmir, you speak to people mm. there regularly. What do you think the people, and polling is very difficult in that part of the world, in that, in that place, but what do you think the people there actually want? Is it just greater autonomy to bring back Articles 370, which was just revoked overnight? Is it to join with Pakistan? Is it to be independent? Is it a self-determination movement? I don't think that they could have been clearer. They have been saying it for 70 years. They've been saying it loudly. They've been saying it with their blood since 1990. Of course, it's self-determination, you know. Of course, it's self-determination. To be an independent Kashmir. Yeah, the right to self-determination, to be independent, to be in charge of their own destiny, the stewards of their own land and their culture. Of course, it's that. And of course, it's not an impossibility. Why mm. should it be? 
You no, know, it's, it's, it, it's not an impossibility. But of course, this government of all Indian governments, a Hindu nationalist government, uh, is the least likely to kind of even entertain the possibility of that. Talk to me about Hindu nationalism, what it stands for and what it has in common with the kind of far right nationalism that we're seeing across the West, whether it's Trump's America, Brexit, Britain, France, Hungary, in Israel with Netanyahu. What are the similarities between what Modi is doing there and what's happening around the world? The similarities are, of course, the idea of racial supremacy and Aryan supremacy and things like that. Where India at this moment steals a march over all the other people that you've mentioned, while they have a lot of dealings with them, is that they have an organization that has existed since uninterrupted in a way since 1925, banned a few times. The RSS. The RSS, yes. And recently they announced their plans to start an RSS school to train people to join the army. And they have a whole lot of Hindu nationalist groups. uh, And so those groups can be pretty violent. They are not directly RSS, but they live under its shade in some ways, under its protection, if you like. And you're right about um, India stealing a march on some of the other countries going through the same far-right tendencies. I mean, people call Modi, Narendra Modi, India's Donald Trump, which, and I hate, I loathe to be fair to Donald Trump, but to be fair to Donald Trump, he didn't come to office with blood already on his hands, as Narendra Modi did uh, from his time in Gujarat, where he was chief minister during those anti-Muslim pogroms in 2002. Yeah, and he doesn't, he doesn't have this organization behind him, you know? Trump doesn't, yes. The RSS has women's organizations, it has schools, it was a shadow state, but now it is the state, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, it has its people everywhere. So what I what I wanted to say, and I think this is the very, very important thing for people to know, that uh, abrogating Section 370 was an RSS plan from long ago. Yes. They've always wanted to do it. It's, n- it's not nothing surprising in that sense, you know. And now, in the eastern state of Assam, which borders Bangladesh, there had been a process called the National Register of Citizens. Because Assam borders Bangladesh, there was this thing that there are a lot of refugees from Bangladesh and we, want, we are not able to accommodate them all. And so there was this demand for the NRC. And the BJP came in supporting it. The Home Minister said he called the Muslim infiltrators termites and so on. When the process of the NRC happened, today you have something like 1.9 million people who are not on the list of citizens, let's say. So now the problem that the BJP faces is that many of them are not Muslims. In fact, the bulk of them are not Muslims. So they've started to say, we want a Citizenship Amendment Act where non-Muslims will automatically be citizens, but Muslims will not be. Now they are building in Assam detention camps for these more than 1.9 million people. But they are saying that we want to have the NRC in all the other states. You're creating a situation in which you will have non-Hindus as non-citizens. You will have tiered rights. Which is what the RSS has always wanted, tiered rights with Hindus at the top. Yes, and then you're creating a situation 
which is just pre the concentration camps. So this is my question to you. When you raise the issue of Indian Muslims and what's going on, not just in Kashmir, but as you say, in Assam, where they're building detention camps, uh, when you bring up this situation in the West, when you bring it up, I bring, I'm, a, I'm a Muslim of Indian origin. My parents are from India. Even when you bring it up with other Muslim communities in the West and try and explain to them what's going on in India, a lot of people will say, come on, it can't be that bad. India has 200 million Muslims. It's nearly one-sixth of the population. Even if the BJP wanted to, even if the RSS wanted to they couldn't carry out a genocide against the muslims what do you say to what do you say to such people i agree that they can't carry out a genocide on that scale but they can make a massive population of stateless people who will just yeah. fall prey to so much of the chaos that's coming i don't lose much sleep over people in the west not understanding you know maybe because i've dis- i i discover that people you know politics is not about other people's compassion but if no one's going to do anything, that's pretty depressing because who's going to save it those is. people who are being put in camps? No, so they have to save themselves, you know. They have to develop a kind of politics. We have to all think about it here now. Can can they? Do, are, are you hopeful about that, Arundhati? No, because I'm not. Listening to this interview, it's pretty depressing. You're talking about the RSS with boots on the ground. Yeah. Modi's just been re-elected. A, maybe a preview of what's going to happen in the US next year with Trump. Uh, where is the yes, hope uh, that this okay, is going to happen? Okay, let me tell you the other side of the story. Please. There are 10 states in India which have these special provisions. On Independence Day, when Modi was boasting about how he abrogated Section 370, many groups in the states in the Northeast said, we will not celebrate Indian independence because this is a federal country. It's not, you you can't just force us all into this. The whole Naga peace talks had to do with their own flag and their own constitution. You know, last week, the Home Minister suggested that Hindi should become the national language, immediately there were protests in the South. So the more they pull this together, the more it breaks, you know. We are in a lot of trouble, there is no doubt. All I'm saying is it's not just going to go entirely their way. Well, hope, I don't know about hope, but I'm just saying that they can't control even that valley of Kashmir with their 900,000 soldiers or 700,000 soldiers or whatever it is, you know. They don't know what to do. They can't lift their feet off the pedal. So this is a kind of stupidity. I mean, that's why I said that rally was like goodbye India, howdy Modi, you know, because this way they are going to destroy this place. And I know you said one last question. I know you said that you worked out long ago that you can't rely on the compassion of others or people in the West or the international community. But a lot of people listening to this interview are not in India and they may want to do something. They may think, I didn't know anything about this or I did know about this and I want to help. What can people do, if anything? Is there anything people can do listening to this to help the plight of people in Kashmir, do you think? For one, they should read up. I mean, there's so much written about Modi's past, about where he comes from, about who he is, about the RSS, about its open admiration for Hitler and Mussolini. People can only do something if they understand, you know. Someone like Roger Cohen who wrote that piece in the New York Times, it would be wonderful if he had the integrity to write another piece saying he was wrong, he was ill-informed and he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. On that note, Aaron Dutty, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. And please, I know you don't want to talk about yourself, but do stay safe. Yes, OK. OK, maybe. That was the novelist and activist Aaron Dutty Roy speaking to me from her home in New Delhi. 
and making the point that we need to give a damn about what's going on in Kashmir. We need to inform ourselves. We need to educate ourselves. We need to understand what is going on and why it is so wrong. Millions of people there right now, as you're listening to this, are living under siege. And it's not about being pro-India or pro-Pakistan. It's about being pro-Kashmiri, pro the people who are suffering, pro their human rights, pro their dignity, pro their freedom. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Lital Millard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.